Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and happiness. I'm Graham Alcott and on this episode I'm talking to Heather Moyes, Canadian double Olympic gold medalist who I met on my recent trip to Toronto. So I'm in the office and spending a lot of time on this project. It's uh, If you haven't listened to the podcast before, there are basically two things going on here. One is every two weeks I'm putting out a new conversation with someone who has an interesting take on those three key themes of productivity and work-life balance and happiness and really exploring some of the tensions and contradictions like within those three key themes as well. And the second thing is I'm trying to just kind of give you a bit of a look behind the scenes of the, the entire process of writing a book. So right now I'm in the kind of early idea stages and then the podcast is going to follow it through into the writing and through into the editing and through into the uh, sort of finishing touches and the promotion and the getting onto the shelf and, and all that. So I'm, I'm hoping the podcast will follow it all the way through. Uh, so let me just give you a very, very quick book update, which is I'm behind my schedule. I uh, I kind of had this thing that by the end of September, I would have a good first draft to be able to give to the publishers. And that was what I'd agreed with them. And obviously they sort of set things up to go into the catalogue and all that sort of thing. And do you know what? Every time I've done an interview, I've done 10 or 11 now. I've done quite a few so that I can kind of stack them up. And when I get really deep into the writing, it means I don't have to be sort of coming out of writing mode to do more interviews to kind of keep the fortnightly thing going with the podcast. So I've got quite a few stacked up ready to go. Uh, have interviewed some really, really fascinating people who have really interesting takes on these subjects. And I feel like every time I do it, it just opens up a whole nother load of Pandora's boxes with with more boxes inside and, and all that sort of thing. So it really feels like I need to spend longer in the sort of research part of the thing and, and really in this kind of mode of being the curious information gatherer. So I emailed the publishers. I said, look, you know, I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of thinking I want to be on a bit of a slower schedule with this. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of uh, putting this book into your sales catalogs and, and whatever? Because publishing is kind of one of those weird things where it works so far in advance. And um, luckily they were really good about it. They've been really supportive. And I said I'll come back to them with a new schedule. But basically it's going to go a little bit slower than I thought. So that's a real relief. It just gives me a more... Uh, you know, it gives me like just more sort of chance to breathe really in terms of just really sort of exploring what this book needs to be and how it's going to be useful and, and why it's going to help people. So uh, really pleased to just have that sort of extra bit of time really uh, to sort of think the whole thing through. And hopefully what that means is if you're enjoying the podcast, it means there'll be more because the idea is I'm going to spend longer doing research and uh, have more of these podcasts done. So, uh, so I'm hoping that's going to be a really, really good thing. So I'm back uh, just over the weekend from Aston Villa's final home game of the season. It's been such a miserable year to be an Aston Villa fan. It's been really awful. And uh, the game I came back from was uh, Villa against Newcastle. It was a really meaningless game from a Villa point of view. And we've won like three games all season. So it's been really kind of miserable. And um, it just really felt like we needed to let off some steam and have a party. So we had a massive sort of relegation party. Everyone smuggled in inflatables and beach balls and you know inflatable dolls and all this kind of stuff and threw them all around had a protest against the owners and then just really just you know kind of took the piss out of ourselves in uh, you know a really kind of humorous way and uh, just you know just really kind of positive atmosphere it really just reminded me that like football can be fun uh, even though the game was like a boring nil nil it just it was it was the first time I've really felt that kind of sense of, of sort of local community uh, football for a while and it was just really nice 
It reminded me of um, Nick Hornby's book, Fever Pitch, and there's a line in there where he says uh, football had come to mean too much to him and he couldn't work out whether life was shit because Arsenal was shit or the other way around. And honestly, like, I really have felt like this season, because uh, football's kind of my escape, right? But it's felt like this season that football has been the miserable thing in my life that's been pulling the rest of my life down. And so it just feels really good to turn the page. It feels really good to get to the end of the season and be able to say, hey, the next game I go to will be in a new football season and it's going to be different. And it can't be worse. It can't be worse than this season, right? It really can't be. Can it? I don't think so. So anyway, from here's a lovely segue from, uh, from the misery of Aston Villa's awful football season uh, through to very inspiring sporting achievements. So this week's guest is Heather Moyes. And Heather is um, just an amazing sports person. So not only is she a double Olympic gold medalist, but her original sport was actually rugby. And she also has represented her country in cycling as well. So just really amazing to represent your country in three different sports. Um, she's originally from Prince Edward Island, PEI. So you'll hear her talk about that in the podcast. I had to look up where that was. It's um, a little island just north of Nova Scotia. And she talks about it as if it's like this kind of small town, sort of Hicksville mentality, which I really relate to coming from a small town myself. And it kind of, you know, there's always that that thing when you come from a small town, which is that like, you know, uh, sort of big achievement and, you know, fame and notoriety and success is what happens to other people in other places. And like, obviously no one from here could ever do that. That's kind of how you think when you're from a small town, I think. Uh, so really inspiring that, you know, she came from that kind of background and uh, still had the wherewithal to, to go and compete. And I think actually sometimes that small town kind of humbleness can be a very useful trait, actually, you know, in terms of some of that stuff as well. So uh, she represented Canada in the um, the Women's Rugby World Cup in both uh, 2006 and 2010, was the leading try scorer in both of those tournaments as well. In 2010, she won gold in the Vancouver Winter Olympics in the two-woman bobsleigh, and then they repeated the feat in Sochi in 2014. And uh, also, as you'll hear Heather talk about in the podcast as well, uh, she took up cycling just to just because she was going through um, quite a serious injury rehabilitation. She'd never been on an outdoor track before in, in 2011. And then by 2012, she represented Canada in the Pan American Cycling Championships in Argentina and finished fourth. So just really, you know, remarkable sort of ability to to take up new sports and also to persuade the coaches of those sports to give her a shot. Uh, and not content with just sporting prowess, she's also just recently come back from Antarctica where she climbed Mount Vinson, which is the highest mountain in Antarctica, raising money for the Canadian Military Veterans Charity. And these days, Heather's a keynote speaker and also writing a, writing a book as well. So uh, despite having absolutely the opposite traits in terms of our sporting abilities, uh, like, you know, uh, I've managed to find uh, quite a few things in common with Heather and we, we had a we had a really good time uh, chatting and uh, no doubt we'll uh, keep in touch as well. So what you'll find with this interview is a little bit of background noise, there's a little pre-warning. So we were squirreled away in a little upstairs restaurant in the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto and literally this was like the only place I could find to make this work. Basically I had like an hour and then you know she'd just finished a meeting, I was about to jump on the airport shuttle and fly to New York so we literally had an hour, we found the quietest place we could and what you'll still hear is a bit of clanking of Hotel China and cutlery and there's some uh, chatter in the background. There's also some really awful 
Hotel Muzak in the background as well. So try and ignore that as well. Uh, but yeah, it was a really interesting conversation and uh, very, very inspiring. So I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, so here's Heather Moyes. And I started by asking Heather if it was uh, a problem getting recognised. Uh, just It just kind of occurred to me that, you know, there's been times where she's been stood on the Olympic podium and, uh, you know, probably her face becomes recognisable. So I started just by asking her if that was ever a problem for her. Toronto people usually walk around with their heads down. <laughs> right, that's true. So there's not a lot of eye contact yeah. that happens in Toronto. Uh, in the Maritimes, in PEI, it's a lot different. Or in certain environments around here, but generally I'm pretty safe to, to wander around. And presumably there's been times in your life where that hasn't necessarily been the case. So if it's... No, you know, it's sometimes when the hype of the Olympics, like yeah. it was a lot more recognized. But you have to understand our sport, they just see our eyes, really. <laughs> so it's not like a figure skater where they see your face all the time. Right. Or like hockey players where you're like on TV all the time. So for me, it's literally just like, uh, you know, wearing a helmet yeah. kind of helps keep that anonymity a little bit. So I should just explain, uh, just at the very offset, the reason I'm asking Heather this question is you're a double Olympic gold medalist. Yes. Uh, in So we say bobsled, but we say bobsled, right? No, we say bobsled in Canada. Oh, do you? Okay. Americans right. say bobsled. Okay. Right. And I really don't care. Really. <laughs> don't care. I'm not really uptight about what people call it, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing is that just sort of looking through, and maybe that's maybe I got that from Wikipedia, the whole bobsled thing. But um, <laughs> not only are you double Olympic champion in, in bobsled, but you have also um, represented Canada in other sports as well, right? So you're yes. kind of an all-rounder. Well, uh, rugby was the first sport um, in which I represented Canada, and that was, I guess, my first. Uh, I played U23 once back in the summer of 2001. No, I'm lying, in the summer of 2000. And then I went away and I traveled and I worked abroad and that sort of thing. And then I came back in 2004 to do my master's degree. And that summer I was kind of spotted just playing club rugby with my sister. And by that fall, I was on my first tour with the national rugby team. So cool. I've been to two uh, rugby world cups. Um, was the leading try scorer in both of them. And then I just, my last tournament was the the rugby sevens the rugby world the world cup rugby sevens yep. which was in moscow in 2013 so that was my first cool and then yeah. cycling as well yes well that was <laughs> <laughs> that happened because i was rehabbing a very serious ankle injury that i right. got playing rugby in my last the last game of the rugby world cup in 2010 i kind of destroyed my ankle and so a sports doc the next summer said like suggested track cycling so in the velodrome as right. a sprinter yeah um so i had never even ridden a skinny wheeled bike before <laughs> so i had to learn how to clip in and out of pedals i had to learn how to ride a bike with a you know fixed gear and no brakes and learn how to go on the track and stuff and so i just did it for one winter um but knowing me like if i'm using something for rehab i i want to challenge myself or some kind of something to push me through rehab so i just said i would love to be able to represent Canada in a race sometime over the winter. <laughs> and so the coaches were a little skeptical, of course, because I'd never done anything like this before. And um, and the Olympics were that sum the next summer, so they kind of were focused mostly on the people competing there. And I just kind of pointed out, it's not always about the Olympics. Like, I just want to, I want to push myself. I want to test myself. So they gave me a, a qualifier, and they said, if I beat that time, then I could go to the Pan Am Cycling Championships in Argentina and represent Canada there. So I did. <laughs> and so I 
representing Canada in Argentina. Yeah. Cool. You make that sound so easy, kind of annoyingly <laughs> and frustratingly. I don't. I, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy. I'm, pr- I'm a pretty determined person, but I think the hardest part was convincing them to give me a shot. Yeah, right. So, you know, I mean, there are no guarantees in any of it, but I mean, at least it gave me, regardless of whether I qualified or not, it kind of, it just gives you something to push for, especially when you're rehabbing. Because rehabbing can just be very mundane if you right. don't have something to keep you going. And so bobsled being, I guess, your, you'd say that's your main sport, right, in terms of achievement and... Uh, I, well, that's hard to say because, I mean, any rugby player would be like, no, she's a rugby player who happens <laughs> right. to do bobsledding. Okay. Um, and, I mean, I've been at the top of rug- like of my sport when yeah. I was playing rugby uh, for two World Cups, which which is kind of equivalent to being at the top of your sport yeah. in bobsled for right. two Olympic Games. It's just more worldly recognized in bobsledding because right. okay. bobsledding's in the Olympics and rugby's not. So for the first time ever, bobsledding will be in the Olympics uh, for sevens rugby this summer in Rio. Okay. Um, but I mean, it wasn't in the Olympics when I was playing, which means so it came a little bit too late for you. Yeah, it came. A, yeah, it totally did. And I mean, it's pro- probably yeah. one of the best um, spectator sports for a in tournament format, um, and it has more countries than I mean. It's just ridiculous how it kind of epitomizes the Olympic qualifications and it's just so strange how it took so yeah, long for them to get yeah. in there uh, and i'm from but, rugby in the midlands yeah I'm, so so, um, I'm just uh, just before we press record here i was just saying to heather i'm going to send send you some details just about the history of rugby yeah i love it yeah like being being from the town it's a story that i know pretty well um so um let's talk about winning olympic gold medals because that's something that okay. is um <laughs> Something that's very, uh, I think, asp- it's obviously very aspirational for lots of folks, and lots of folks would say it's beyond them, and would look at people competing in the Olympics and winning gold medals and thinking that could never be me. Um, so, how did you? How, how come you didn't have that mindset? How come you were you were of the thought of yeah, I'm going to go and see the Olympics, I'm going to compete, and I'm going to go for gold. Um, well, for me, it didn't happen until I was 27. But I didn't really, I didn't, I, I didn't grow up watching a lot of sports, and I, my family just didn't watch a ton of sports on TV. And I grew up just playing a whole bunch of different sports. And I also grew up in a very small town, um, and there weren't people around me training for the Olympics or training for you know to represent their country. So I didn't grow up kind of thinking that that's what I wanted to do. So it felt like quite a distant thing. Right, Olympians, those are TV people. Yeah. You know, those are TV people. They're not everyday normal people like I had always considered myself to be. And I just played sports the whole, like just for fun. I just loved it. I didn't train for sports or start even lifting weights or doing any of that until I started bobsledding, which was when I was 27. So I just, even with all the varsity sports I played at university and all the sports in high school, like I just, I just played because I enjoyed it and because it was social and it was fun and and I always thought that if I actually trained for it and if I started lifting weights then it would become work and a job and I wouldn't enjoy it as much and so I just never did Um, and I guess I never tried to get to another level because I just was enjoy like I just thought it would happen if you enjoy playing the level you're playing in you're you'd automatically go places if you were meant to but because I didn't have this far off goal, I wasn't trying to do anything. I mean, I didn't know that we even had a national 
women's rugby team until it was announced at a tournament that I was added to the long list of right. the national program. <laughs> and I was like, what program? And the person <laughs> sitting beside me, yeah. yeah, the person sitting beside me said, man, that's awesome, the national women's rugby team. And I was like, we have a national women's <laughs> rugby team? So it's, I guess for me, it was kind of a blessing to just be able to do it because I enjoyed it, which just happened to get me to the right places and do the right things. Because I think that one big problem is that a lot of people focus so much on achieving goals without yeah. without actually enjoying the process because all that matters is the goal as opposed to just choosing at each moment. No, this is I would not rather do anything else than this. Hmm. So that's interesting because I think a lot of people would say that you know to become a champion you have to have you have to have that goal you have to be really determined but like what you're saying there is that it's the it's almost like the process of it and lo- you've got to love the process you've got to love the journey along the way rather than just I know. it just sounds have so goal, cliche right? enjoy the journey but I think that I think it's important when you put it in perspective so when I talk to kids or students and even parents of kids who are in sports um, I just I have this kind of personal motto about no regrets and so when you start trying to figure out decisions between continuing to pursue something or pursuing something else that you've always kind of had in the back of your mind how do you how do you choose and they're like well I've always wanted to go to the Olympics so but you have to make those decisions based on the worst case scenario of if you choose that path over something else so for example I spoke to a young boy probably university Um, and he was kind of on the path to going to the Olympics um, on a field hockey team and he had said that he always wanted to work do development work in India where his whole family was from and wanted to go and help out there but he was worried because he's going through this development all these development programs of like he's on the junior national team which means next step would hopefully be the senior national team for the Olympic team and and that sort of thing and I just kind of said well if you continue for the next four years going towards the Olympic cycle and that Olympic year suddenly someone comes out of nowhere and is better than you and takes your mm, spot in your position and, are you yeah. going to regret deciding that over going overseas or okay. are you or if someone or if you break your ankle three months out or two months out right. before the Olympics are you going to regret the decision of having pursued that and if you actually every year chose, no, this is what I want to be doing over anything else, then that's where you're supposed to be. But if you've got kind of these regrets, and if you chose to go overseas and you come back and you don't make the team, well, you might not have made it even if you had stayed. Mm. But if you go away and you really want that spot, you will still train wherever you are to the point where when you come back, you'll be the best shape you can be. You'll be as ready as you possibly can be. And then it's yeah, it's up to... You know, I, it's just it's just crazy. I think people just need to start making decisions based on, you know, worst case scenario, having no regrets on kind of what they've chosen. Yeah, the looking forward to your future self and making sure that you don't have regrets is just an interesting thing, isn't it? Because if you think about people who have two different career options and one's a bit more practical and one's a bit more creative or something like that, it's like yeah, you st- it's ultimately the same process isn't it like what's I just what's the thing I'm willing to regret what's the thing I'm willing to, to let go I know a, a friend of mine just showed me a, um, a talk a graduation talk by Jim Jim Carrey was doing this oh, right, yeah. convocation yeah. kind of grad talk and it, he was talking about his pursuing your passion and pursuing what you love and he said some people will choose the safer path 
like his father did. And he said his father could have been an amazingly hilarious comedian and mm. like a, a famous, famous comedian, but he chose um, the safer route. I think he became an accountant or something. Right. So he chose a safer career. And yet, you know, a number of years later, he got fired from his safe job. And so he's jobless, unemployed, even though he chose the safe route. So basically, Jim Carrey was saying, you know, you can you can fail at the safe route or you can fail at your passionate route. You might as well pursue <laughs> what you're passionate about. Absolutely. So it's it was just a really, really neat line that he said. And I just, yeah, it makes so much sense. Mm. Um, and so your route into rugby was at, at national level. Again, we have an Olympic, we have a rugby team for, yes. the, for the national side. Whatever. Um, and then there's a similar story around Bob, Bobsley, right? In terms of where you first encounter that is not not when you're 10 years old. No. I think a lot of people have this idea that anyone who's in sport must have had pushy parents at the age of or something. No, my parents could have stuff. cared less if right. I had pursued sports or not, um, which is I'm very grateful for. I think that there's a very fine line between parents feeling like they're supporting their kids mm. and that actually being pressure. And also um, the whole thing of like parents living out their fantasies through yeah. their kids, which you see in all kinds of... And even parents who are like, oh, no, 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 I'm right? not pressuring my kids. Yeah. I'm just spending, you know, thousands of dollars to yeah. send them to these camps <laughs> that ultimately could make the kids feel guilty yeah. later down the road when they so they don't feel like they can tell their parents that they actually hate that sport or they'd yeah. rather do something else because the parents have invested so much money into their development um, so yeah there is a super fine line between yeah. providing someone opportunities and making them feel like they have to you know follow through on some things like that but I mean rugby for me started in high school like I just played because I let my older sister play I loved it loved watching her play I played um, and bobsledding was um, after university. Um, I got a random phone call from a track coach at, the at a different from a different university. He said he'd been asked to do recruiting for Eastern Canada for bobsledding, and thought that I had the ideal, like I was a bigger sprinter, more of a power sprinter instead of mm -hmm. a little quick turnover kind of sprinter. Right. And he thought that I had the ideal combination between strength and speed. Thought that I'd be perfect at it, and so he just said, Heather, honestly, I know who's in the program right now. You'd be going to the Olympics for sure. Wow. And I was like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> so this was in 2001, um, before the Park City Olympic Games in 2002. And I just said, no, I'm not interested. He goes, Heather, you could be an Olympian. And I was like, wow. no. I, at the time, it had always been a dream of mine to work in a developing country. Mm. Not to go to the Olympics for a sport I didn't know anything about. And so I turned him down and I went and did my... Um, internship in Trinidad and Tobago and I ended cool. up living there for almost three years and only moved back to Canada to do my master's degree and then exactly four years after that phone call that I had in 2001 so in 2005 yeah. I ran into that same recruiter at my former track coach's retirement party and he just was very persistent <laughs> and very you know he's like I know you're older and I know it's going to be more difficult but I just saw that you did a couple of races this year. You should still do this. And so I was like, oh, my goodness. Okay, just send me the information. <laughs> you know, I, so for me, it was almost like pulling teeth to just get me to do the testing. And I ended up doing the testing. And without, ever, without even having seen a bobsled, I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to do it or not. So you'd never seen one, let alone been in one? Well, I'd seen it one on TV. I mean, cool right. runnings, so, right? But not but, like you'd not sort of been up close no. next to it. And, okay. No. I think there was a bobsled on display wow. 
you know, at the Olympic kind of, but no, actually, I don't even know if I saw it then. Anyway, no, it was like I hadn't been in one, hadn't been down a track, nothing. We had just done testing, and I ended up breaking one of their testing records. And so suddenly it was just like, wait a second, wait a second. Um, I'm breaking records amongst people who've been training for years yeah. and who are supposed to be representing us in five months to go to the Olympics. Maybe this guy was right. What's this guy's I'm name? Like Dennis Barrett. Dennis was right. <laughs> Dennis. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, what a great guy. How, like, did you have to buy Dennis a lot of beers? Was there? A I, kind you know of, what? Uh, I've only seen him maybe once since then. Or something. Like I've only maybe seen him once or twice <laughs> since then, and usually at the the Lake Placid track. Um, but yeah, I do. I do own. I do own uh, probably a few cases by now. <laughs> at least I'd say. <laughs> so you did that. That was. Um, uh, Vancouver 2010? No, my first Olympics was in Torino. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so five months, at, four months after getting into a bobsled for the first time, yeah. and we competed in Torino. Right. Um, and we came fourth. Fourth okay. in Torino. We missed the medal by five hundredths of a second. <gasps> so the next year I went back to do my mas- finish my master's degree because I had just assumed, I, I applied for a one-year leave of absence from my program. Right. Kind of, I felt like I was applying for a one-year leave of absence from real life really like okay. it was almost like taking a pause a little time out I like what you were saying before about doing that whole I'm going to push myself into this and I'll have no regrets if it doesn't right. work out I'm just going to do this cool yeah. story I'm going to do whatever I like you know whatever I can to see if I can just challenge myself to do this and then you know after that back to real life again and then yeah. I went back to do my master's degree and by the end of the degree I was like do I really want fourth place because that's what we got in Torino do yeah. I want that to be my story right we were so close. Like we miss, we were so close to standing on the podium, and I'd only been in the program for five months. I wonder if, if I commit the next three years to training for this, yeah. can I change that? And so for me, it was all like, you so know, just kind of eating away in the back of your head, like I yeah, to, unfinished business. Yeah. It felt like unfinished yeah. business. And I mean, the next games was a home Olympic games, so totally different in terms of extra incentive just yeah. to be able to compete on yeah. home soil. And yeah, so that's when I came back. So that was that was Vancouver twenty seventeen. That was and, Vancouver, yeah. And then Sochi twenty fourteen. Sochi twenty fourteen was a bit different. Um, so I I competed for right after the Vancouver Games. That's when I destroyed my ankle right. that September um, playing rugby. So that kind of put me out of bobsledding a little bit and did cycling to rehab it so that there was yeah. no impact on my ankle. Um, and then I was just trying to figure out the rest of my life and I was doing a lot of speaking engagements and stuff like that and I loved it and then both rugby and bobsledding contacted me the summer of 2012 and said they both wanted me to come back to the sports for these big upcoming events and I was like I I really wondered whether I like I was thought I had to decide between them and figure out which one I wanted to do and I found that extremely difficult to do there are pros and cons to both and I just mm. I I was really really struggling so finally I just said why am I struggling with this decision if I want to do both I'm going to tell them I'll do both if one of them has a problem with it I'll just do the other one <laughs> right so I mean you're rolling the dice but yeah. anyway so I was just waiting to see which one I was going to do and they ended up both agreeing that I could do both and they would arrange kind of a schedule where I would wow. be here and there and whatever um so that was the plan and then within a month um, I was just starting to train again because you have to understand I wasn't I hadn't been running for a year and a half because yeah. of my ankle um, so I started everything right from the bottom building blocks kind of building up my training and within three weeks to a month I started getting pain in my hip found out I needed hip surgery so I had hip surgery in November of 2012 so it changed wow. everything 
So six months after my surgery, I had to prove that I could actually play in a rugby game. So I was in a rugby game just for a few minutes, but to basically see that I could do all the things. And seven months after my surgery, I was at the Rugby World Cup, Sevens World Cup in Russia. And then nine months after my surgery, I had to qualify for the national bobsled team. Wow. So, yeah. So in terms of that, um, you know, come back from, I mean, hip surgery is a huge you know, debilitating yeah, thing, right? Pretty um, <laughs> pretty intense. What were the dark moments like? I mean, do, do, did you have doubts at, at points along that journey? I wouldn't say I had doubts. I would say that there were there were um, dark. Uh, I don't, dark sounds so ominous, but yeah, I never had uh, doubts because I feel like doubts wasn't the point. It was it was kind of like the very beginning. There are no guarantees, even if you don't have an injury, right, on what's going to happen. So. For me, that, like, bobsledding was never really what I loved about competing. It mm-hmm. was the challenge that I loved. And so, to be perfectly honest, I think that the surgery was a blessing for me because it turned in something that I, in a way, I kind of felt like it was a bit of an obligation having been asked to come back. Right. Um, you know, they said, we have no depth in the program. You know, there's very little chance that we will even be on the podium, let alone, like, defending our gold. If you don't come back. So I just I felt a little bit like a sense of obligation, mm. but the surgery turned it into a challenge again. Right. Like nobody okay. thinks I can do this. It's highly unlikely that this is actually possible, but as sure as hell I'm going to see how close I can get. Like I want to see, can I get back and do it? Mm. So it just became. Um, it didn't. It wasn't about success. It was just about the challenge. It really was. And just overcoming that adversity. And there's a couple of things on your website. So. One of the things on your website says you're an advocate for human achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big thing, there's a little talk on there where you talk about believing in, in the possible. Yep. Um, so just tell me more about that philosophy and um, is that something you've always had and just how, that, how that's developed over time? I think it's something that I've always had, but I just never put words into it until I had to start speaking about it. Yeah. Uh, I just, I truly believe that we are capable of way more than we give ourselves credit for. Um, I think we have, we sell ourselves short. We have, through assumptions, fears, self-limiting beliefs, all of these things that kind of limit us from actually taking a step towards something that for some reason we think is unreachable. Yeah. Um, but I think that the goals, everybody needs goals, but the goals shouldn't be the point. Um, I think, I mean, you could meet someone who, you could meet someone who, you know, says, oh, I, I make my goal. Like, I, I've i never failed at anything. Well, have you set your goals high enough? <laughs> right? Like, where are you in yeah. life? Like, are you, you know, just... Like, who knows? Do you consider yourself successful? Or yeah. do you just consider yourself not having failed? Like, you're just avoiding failure at the expense of not reaching what you actually want to reach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just think people need to embrace believing in the possibilities no guarantees but if you kind of enjoy pursuing to see what you're actually capable of you need to set those goals high and probably higher than you actually think is possible but in doing so you kind of sometimes you surprise yourself and Mm -hmm. often I think often if we kind of let every all that baggage go that we have we will often surprise ourselves in figuring that out what's 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 the baggage for you I mean what's what are the things that you have had to let go to, to really push that? Uh, I think, and this is, I don't think I needed to let anything go necessarily for sports. Um, 
because I think I just naturally embrace the, like enjoy the challenge of that. But I mean, even now I like a lot of people just say, you're so humble. Like you, you're, and which I would never want to get rid of that quality. I think some people aren't humble enough probably, but uh, there is the, the small having come from a small place, Mm. that small town mentality. And you know, sometimes you're in situations where you're like, do I really, uh, how did this, like, for me, my whole life up until this point really feels very surreal. All the things that I've, <laughs> the things that I've achieved, I don't know if I've really internalized them. Yeah. Like, like they're facts, and I know that yeah. that's happened. <laughs> Same as standing on top of an Olympic podium. Like I know I was there, <laughs> but it all still feels very surreal. Yeah. Like I'm not sure how to internalize that. And some people will embrace that, and then, you know, some people. In a way, I think some people put themselves up on pedestals and they like being up there and they like that. And for me, I just think that with what I've accomplished, it's just given me an opportunity to show other people that like, I considered myself to be somewhat, my brother would disagree, but somewhat normal. Um, (laughs) Why would your brother disagree? I just, he's a sibling. That's why. (laughs) There's nothing normal about you. Um, But I just, it's, I just think we all sell ourselves short. Yeah. Um, and for me, that kind of small town mentality, it even just even now, am I deserving of the things I'm doing? Am I, you know, who am I to stand up on a stage in front of thousands of people, which is what I do like weekly. Mm. But all of a sudden it, it catches you sometimes going, you, I mean, you're going through motions and you're not going through motions, but you're, you know, you're doing all these different things. And then suddenly you get the mindset going, oh my gosh, like, I am standing up on this stage with, or I'm sharing the stage with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and suddenly you get surprised and it really shouldn't surprise us because those people who we sometimes idolize or put up on pedestals, you start realizing are just normal people too. Right. Uh, but you, it's, it's, it's so strange. There's a whole bit in my book about this. <laughs> is it really? Good. Yeah, so this is a whole thing about um, ninjas are human and not superhero. And so the idea is you can be a human being, you have great tools, you have a great mindset, you have great systems, all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. But ultimately you have no like superhero special powers, right? It's so good. And yeah. then to explain that, I think the thing I say in the book and sometimes I say in talks is imagine sometimes before Barack Obama goes on stage to give the State of the Union address or whatever, he's probably cowering in the background going, I hope this goes well. You know, and oh, probably. He, you know, he will have and everyone who you idolize will have some kind of imposter syndrome or fear or you know they, everyone has their own hang-ups and foibles yes. and all this stuff right no, no one has like silver bullets to get through all this stuff exactly it's it's so yeah. interesting I think isn't there a movie The American President or something I'm probably getting all these I never remember names of movies properly yeah. but isn't oh, is that it the one the, where there's like a look-alike thing no I think this is the one where the president wants to date this girl yeah and the girl is very hesitant but it's not because he just said, if I weren't the president, like, if you stripped me of that title, oh, would you okay. be interested in, like, would you be as hesitant yeah. as you are? Because that's all I am. I'm right. just, I'm just a man who happens to have the title <laughs> of being a president. Like, it, So, presumably one of the messages that you're giving people when you do talks is about helping them to realize their potential. So, do you feel like you've realized your potential already, or do you feel like, no, not yet? I think there are a whole bunch of categories of potential, and I think that... I mean, I've possibly realized my potential in certain athletic endeavors that I've, that I've accomplished, but it's, 
I think if you just you don't keep setting goals for yourself, you're then then what? Like yeah. I don't know what. How do you enjoy things then? So there are always goals. Like right now, you know, I've got projects on the go and and mm. visions that I like long term visions that I have. So no, there's every time you have a new goal and a new vision, there's potentially you know you're kind of on a starting at ground zero again and seeing how close you can get to realizing. You know that goal and discovering what you're capable of, and so no, I I don't think you're ever. I well, I think if I ever come to the point where I've realized my potential, it's it's going to be a sad day, and I'll be tapping yeah, out. Right? Do you know Gary Vaynerchuk? Does that name ring a bell to no, you? So he's doesn't. like a guy online who does like social media advice and stuff. Okay. But his one of his little mottos is um, it's all about the climb, mm-hmm. and it's like which actually is a really nice segue into asking you about climbing a mountain in Antarctica actually which I totally didn't that was not intentional but his thing is it's all about the climb and his idea of the climb is he wants to be rich enough to one day buy the New York Jets because they're such a terrible team and he's kind of good and he says it's going to be the best day of my life when I buy the New York Jets and also the worst because actually the climb is yeah, it's important. Because then, but, what do you focus on? Yeah, right? absolutely. It's the yeah. same. It's like it. It's to be honest, it's the same as after mm-hmm. the Antarctica climb. We, I spoke with a lot of the people who went, and a lot of them got back and they read a loss. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of Type A like executive people who were there, corporate people, and they came back and they're like, "Now what?" They'd had this goal and this. They've been so training. They've been doing all together. this stuff. How long were you training, or how long were they training? Well, to? everyone was training individually. Right, so, okay. I mean, some people started like a year out. But it's like you know, for several months, it's a big, big goal on everybody's. It's a goal, but I mean, it's it's a goal in terms of even just buying all the equipment yeah. that you need and like yeah. the checklist and doing the fundraising. And so you're so focused on mm. this stuff, and it's like in the forefront of your mind, and you're trying to get everything done in order to be prepared enough to go. And then when you get home, it's like, huh, like. That it's like that's over. Yeah. Okay, now what? You know, did, it's did the same as looking thing? forward to Christmas or whatever. Yeah. You know, you get hyped right. up and it's all the whatever, and then you realize, okay, it's over. Yeah. Like, did I miss it? Like, I feel like I just missed Christmas or whatever holiday people are, you know, are celebrating. And it's just. And did you get a similar thing like that at the end of big rugby tournaments or at the end of Olympics? I mean, yeah, did, like it's just, a huge. Just feeling almost like a grief about. And okay, I'm told, I told these corporate guys, it's the same yeah. as the Olympics. Yeah. And I mean, with big tournaments for rugby as well. But I mean, with the Olympics, most of these people are training for four year cycles and everything is kind of put into this thing. And then when it's done, especially if they're retiring as soon as the Olympics are over, right. they're just like, okay, I'm not with the same people anymore. Mm. I'm not with the same. And it goes by so fast. It seems like it's so far away, and yet it's you, as you just kind of check off all the things that have to be done, which is the same as any huge goal, breaking yeah. it down into all these. Yeah. It's really just steps. It's really just a checklist. Mm. And you're checking things off, and you're checking things off, and you're just doing what needs to be done one thing at a time. And all of a sudden, it's there, and then it's gone. And you're like, um, I'm sorry, did, did that happen? And, that, and yeah. it's. Yeah. And then I suppose, sort of knowing uh yeah just knowing your approach and and you know sort of values around this i'd imagine the next thing for you is then okay what's the next goal and kind of setting the thing that drives you forward again rather than you don't want to dwell on that too exactly long, right? and that that can become a problem with some people mm. where they don't have another goal right away or they yeah. don't have another project or vision and a lot of them you know it's you hear a little bit a lot of professional athletes who go into kind of a funk and a depression and stuff after they retire because mm. they don't even have the same 
camaraderie with with their teammates. So they yeah. don't have that same atmosphere. They don't really have a direction. And a lot of times, like these athletes and going through the stuff, it becomes very structured and very you know. And after that, when there's almost too much freedom for them, and they're yeah. like, now what? Now what am I supposed to do now? So a lot of yeah, a lot of athletes get feel kind of lost. Why don't you just do another sport? Just pick something that, else. Well, you know, see? <laughs> see? <laughs> Start again. So this is the non-commercial commercial break. If you want to make a website, then this podcast is not brought to you by Squarespace. You can just use like WordPress and stuff. It's like free. And if you want a mattress... This podcast is not brought to you by Casper Mattresses. I suggest if you if you want a mattress, the chances are you probably have one already. Just use the one you have. It's fine. Uh, but maybe you'd like to sponsor this podcast. Maybe you can email me. It's just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Maybe you're a business and you want to give me some money to sponsor the podcast. Or maybe you're just like a charity and you really feel like you have something really important to share and you feel like I can give you some free airspace to share the thing you do. I just think it's quite cool having having sponsors of some form or another. So if you would like to be a sponsor, just drop me a line, just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. So I hope you're enjoying Heather Moyes. I think the the whole thing of like starting new sports at the age of 27 and starting another new sport because of rehab and stuff kind of got me thinking, I'm kind of the same age as Heather. I reckon she's probably got another sport or two up her sleeve somewhere. She just wasn't telling me. But I'm 37, so I'd love to know as well uh, you can email me and tell me what sport is not too late for me to take up and preferably one where there's some medals involved if I win, right? Uh, so I'd love to hear your ideas. Uh, any sports that are particularly suitable for flaky, lanky 37-year-olds with a poor sense of balance and average fitness. Uh, that'd be good. Graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. So I'm going to let you get straight back to the episode. This is the second part of my conversation with Heather Moyes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, what you do just day-to-day now, right? So you're get, going out and giving talks. Uh, you are talking uh, just before we press record about writing a book. Mm-hmm. So just tell me how you're filling your days. And I should also just say that we had about three days of sort of frantic back and forth <laughs> trying to find one hour in the hotel here in Toronto that would work. I'm um, actually surprised that we, we so, were able to meet. Um, you know, Diary Ninja managed to uh, yeah. pin, pin you down with that. Ninja is very yeah, so, accurate. So tell me how, like, how busy are you and what fills your day? Um, yeah, it's different for me. The busyness level shifts because there's some months or some weeks that are weighted a lot more heavily for speaking engagements, um, for corporate events. They tend to all book around the same times of the year. Yeah. Um, and then there are, there are, you know, months that seem almost empty in terms of like a speaking schedule. Um, but in a way that's been good because it's been able to, to give me kind of chunks of time to be able to focus on, you know, the writing of my book. And sometimes I feel, um, which I've recently identified is that there's some days where it's just, it's so busy on a day. And then at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I just did stuff like nothing specific. Just you're, and I realized that it's, I was those days were being more reactive where you're just answering emails and getting back to people and they need this form signed and I need to do an invoice to send to so and so and I need to you know do these contracts before they get out like or contact my rep about you know an event that has to happen and it's almost just housekeeping stuff yeah, yeah. and yet it fills it can fill 
days. Um, and it kind of never really stops. Um, and then I kind of identified that and realized that I needed to actually allocate chunks of time where I can actually be productive instead of just reactive and mm. start developing new things. Like I've just kind of, I've just written a new keynote. Um, I want to start shifting my keynotes into workshops so that it can be more breakout sessions okay, and different cool. things like that. So there are different kind of evolving things that I want to happen. Um, and the book is taking up a lot of time and just, you know, these other visions that I have for things that are kind of coming down the road and meeting with essential people to kind of put the right, the right people and the right things in place in order to make things happen down the road. And do you feel like with some of that, um, the way you've structured and tried to, you know, get the productivity time to drive stuff forward and things like that, have you tried to replicate, you know, any of the structures that you had in sport? Like, are there, are there parallels with how that works? Uh, I'd like to say yes, because I think that would be a great answer, but I, no, not no, really. Okay. It's <laughs> I was wondering more about the, you know, the, the um, like you have this very focused competitive mentality of yeah. like set a goal go for it yeah the challenge and to be honest it was easier in sports right okay it was way easier in sports because people knew that's what i was doing yeah so that was my priority and right now it's even though i have all these other things i'm working on at home a big massive part of what i do now is networking so right. it's you know arranging a lunch with so-and-so to discuss these things it's going to an event in an evening even though it's like it could just be a sporting event or so mm. like a some kind of social event with specific people who want you to meet so and so because they yeah. think that it will be good for whatever. Um, so there's a lot of there there are a lot more random things and events that kind of make structuring a normal day not possible. So you like don't not, you don't set targets in your mind for how many people's hands you need to shake when you do networking events and things like that. No. You're not like Uber target driven in that way. No. <laughs> Because sometimes I could get so engrossed in a conversation, I could maybe just be speaking with the same group of people without even working. Oh, I'm the same. I, I can't work the room. No, I, I just I, I, I don't mind if someone pulls me away and meets. I have no problems like meeting everybody yeah. in the room. I just like I get so engrossed in people. I just get so interested in people that I just could stay. I'm just, I'm the introvert networker. It's kind of like one on one quality <laughs> conversation with two people, and then I just leave. I hate goodbyes. I hate. Falsehood. Are you I the hate. sneak out person? Yeah, I you, sneak out. Yeah, always, I'm sorry, I'm just going to yeah. go to the bathroom and then you yeah. never come back? <laughs> That's you! Yeah, That's you. Oh. And just, yeah, I have to sort of make excuses. But also, I just can't do that whole, like, anyway, it's been lovely talking. Have you met Dave? And then off you go and palm someone off to the next person. I've had that done to me, <laughs> but I cannot do it. But you know um, that whole thing where someone, so you two should really chat and they give and you And then they turn around else, and leave? And then it's like, you, look, you turn around and they've gone. Right. I tell, I maybe oh my just, gosh. You know, get too excited and talk to people for too long but that's that's basically how like I mean with rugby I mean with with any training you kind of you know your schedule yeah and I know I always knew that I had two days off for training I had a Thursday and a Sunday and those would be the days that I would you know be completely doing nothing physically active and mm, just right. get work done like banking or letters or right. email like doing stuff like that and you just the stuff that you can do sort of from the couch where you don't have to move too much. Or you go for your business lunch or you go right. for like doing yeah. these meetings. But yeah. most people, when they know you're training as an athlete, you're not, you're not doing that. And then mm. in the winter, I'd be gone literally from September to March. Yeah. So you're on yeah. tour and you're competing all winter and you're, yeah. you're on a schedule. There's nothing that's, that's pulling you from anywhere. Yeah. You're just kind of maintaining emails and stuff while you're away and arranging things, but you're not having to be pulled different networking events and different things like that because you're not there it's yeah. sometimes easier to say you're not there instead of just being 
you know, all over the place. But. Oh, just as a little aside as well, you were saying before that um, you don't have a place in Toronto right now. Like, the, for the last few years, you spent a lot of time living in different places. I just wonder what that's like. Do you feel like you miss You're calling me out? a gypsy, aren't you? Yeah, it's a little nomad. Are you a digital nomad? <laughs> You've heard of digital nomads? Right? I haven't heard of Yeah, digital nomads are people who uh, run businesses from a laptop but can go around the world and they tend to live on beaches oh I like that, that sort of thing. yeah you should definitely look into look, being look a digital into, nomad, digital nomad there... but I presume that's been you know that was the deal for you for many years is kind of like you know you're here for a little bit but not all the time and so putting down roots is really difficult right so time. when I when I moved to Toronto due to my master's degree I had a place here you know I rented a I rented a place from my sister and her husband actually um, and then so even yeah. if I was traveling a little bit I still had a, like a place to come back yeah. to until 2011, um, at which time they moved to Denver and they sold yeah. the place that I was renting. <laughs> and I kind of just ended up homeless. I'll, I've no fixed address. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. use that term instead. Um, and But it didn't really bother me at the time because I that's, that's the fall that I decided I was going to go to LA to do track cycling. <laughs> Anyway, right. So I was gone the whole winter anyway, and then came back. And what do you do? Just rent apartments in those places? So it doesn't yeah, feel, I rented it feels quite homely when you're there, right? Well, when I like you're in hotel rooms. Also. No, I wasn't in hotel rooms, but I did couch surf a little bit. Right. Um, just different contacts. Uh, yeah. One was actually a professional hockey player who had a place in Hermosa Beach, and he and I had the same trainer in Toronto. He heard I was going, and he goes, "I don't live there. I'm in Montreal." Yeah. But you know, if you want it, I'm trying to sell it. But if you want to stay and keep it clean, then you could stay for a few weeks until you figure things out. I had no idea where I was going, and so I stayed there for a few weeks, and then I I met um, through a business friend of mine here in Toronto. He had a friend who lived in uh, in California who had an extra kind of corporate apartment. I, he basically let me use that for a month. Yeah. Um, it like it was just amazing, and then finally I was like, okay, Heather, you need to get. <laughs> so I ended up renting my own place and it was fantastic and all that stuff and then when I came back again I was just visiting my parents for part of the summer yeah. and then with rugby and bobsledding asking me to go back it kind of took me I went out west you know back to for bobsledding initial mm. training needed hip surgery so I was in Colorado first and then I was in Halifax for surgery and then I was in PEN for rehab and then I was in Toronto for rehab and then I was back out west for rugby and then I was on tour all winter for bobsledding and then so I mean that's gone over for the last for two years yeah and then yeah. as soon as Sochi happened um, it's been speaking events all over the place so I've literally been like living out of a suitcase I joke <laughs> saying Air Canada Lounge is my home um, but I've been all over the place, which has been uh, great and crazy all at the same time. Yeah, I was just gonna ask, what, what do you miss about um, like having a base and having a home life? Is that important to you? Because a lot of the time when I'm talking to people on this podcast, it's, mm -hmm. you know, they, you get a sense that there's a you know either family or home, and creating the kind of home that people want to live in is a big deal. Like it's a big yeah. sort of human. Thing. So I've been really really fortunate. Cause usually the places um, for which I travel, it's. Um, I usually have family or very close friends who live in those places. So mm. I'm staying with people whom I consider very dear to me. Yeah. Um, so it's, I feel almost lucky because I get, I mean, there are hotels in between and all these other places, but often if I do an event where there is a family member or a really close friend, I will try and extend my stay for a week and be able to actually visit with them or right. stay for an extra few days. So I feel really blessed that way. But just over the last 
half a year, maybe a year or so, I've been starting to feel very displaced. Mm. Yeah. And now that things are becoming a little more organized and less yeah. kind of chaotic since post Sochi, um, I feel like I need that space and need that location. So I've just recently started looking for a place in Toronto just for to have that kind of yeah like to it's grounding isn't it yeah. it's like just having a base and having yeah. somewhere to come back to and everything else and yeah. toronto will be home for the next well well for the next i mean who knows for how long but i mean at least it's it would be somewhere like i mean pei will always be home home for me yeah. um but then again my parents live there and some of my best friends live there so you know i'll always have a place to to go if i need to go back there um, but right now, a lot of the networking and a lot of the events that I do are here, based here in Toronto, which right. make, makes more yeah. sense to find a place here. I, I feel like the time when I felt most, or the times, multiple times where I felt most in flow in the work that I'm doing is when I'm writing and when I really eliminate distractions and I really feel totally focused on one thing. I guess there was, there's some parallels sports-wise. You know, even when I've played sports at really ridiculously incompetent levels, I've still felt that sort of sense of, like, you're just in the game and you're totally, like, everything else kind of falls away. Um, so I'm just wondering how, um, yeah, how you feel about flow as a psychological term and how connectivity affects that for you. Um, I think flow, if, if that's what we're calling it, flow, we're in that tunnel, like that tunnel zone or whatever. Um, Mikhail is the name of the guy who came with Flow. I have no idea. Russian guy. That's an excellent very, very pronunciation. That's yeah, I, outstanding. That, that's the closest I can do without getting it wrong. But we'll uh, we'll put that in the show notes because I can dig that out. But yeah, so he's come up with the whole theory around Flow and you know um, and the psychological state that that you know describes. I guess. Yeah, I I mean I I believe that that is a legit state of mind and state of focus and, and or whatever, however you want to kind of describe it that way. Um, I think that when things kind of fall away and you don't hear things on the side and you're actually just focused on what you need to do, it, it's amazing. I think people need different things in order to get to that state. Yeah. Um, like, for example, if I had a fan, my family was coming to any of my sporting events, if I knew that they were coming, then until I saw them there, then I wouldn't be able to get into that. Oh, because state. you're sort of wondering where they are. Or not I would want to make sure if they're okay. Yeah, Did they get their tickets okay? okay. Are they in right, there? Yeah, Whatever. Okay. So, and they knew that, which meant mm. that they would get there usually quite early. Right. Just because then I can, you know, then I can focus. And now there are things that you can do without being completely in that flow. Like you can still do your warm up. You can still start all those things. You can. So it's not like you're wasting time. But for me to know that they're there, then to be honest, I would never even look at them again. Yeah. Like it's. Just just knowing that, it takes that kind of level of yeah. concern away. And then all I need to do is do my job and focus on the things that I knew, need to do in order to execute what needs mm. to be executed. Um, but without that, there's always going to be that thing in the back, like just kind of wondering. And But that's just for me. Yeah. Like other people might not care less whether they're not kind of there. Now, if my family was going and I didn't know they were going, then obviously I wouldn't be concerned about whether they're there or not. Because... I wouldn't be worrying whether they got tickets or, yeah. you know, got parking or whether there was an accident or any of that stuff. So it's it's just very different what one kind of needs or needs to get out of the way in order to to kind of get into that zone. But and to get into that zone um, in a sporting sense, was, was there anything else that distracted you? Like, um, did you have 
opponents who would so in, in England we call it sledging do you have the same term where it's like you're kind of you bad mouth the opposition to try and put them off and oh like, well that, that happens <laughs> that happens in a lot of sports yeah. not so much in bobsledding I was going to say how does that work <laughs> not so much in bobsledding because you're not directly competing against like you're not it, it would in happen more in rugby it would happen more in rugby and what do you do to put that out of your mind and get back into the right kind of state I, I don't know. So I just think it's kind of funny sometimes when people <laughs> when people say stuff like, I don't know, I think uh, I'd rather not talk about this, but there are probably only one or two, I don't even, there's only one really that I can remember right now, a time where I was felt like I was thrown off my game. But in, yeah. in, in rugby, I feel like it's different. I'm not in as much of a focused flow in rugby as I am in bobsledding. Yeah. But that's because... Why, why can't we talk about the incident, by the way? Is it like a... No, it it's just personal? no. It's not personal. It's just it's it's just embarrassing to know that someone at one point got to me. Okay, you know, right? Okay. You know, at one moment they got to me, and I was just like, okay, that like that's it. I'm tired of you. Like blah blah blah. Anyway, it's yeah. crazy. But why, yeah, why is that embarrassing? Just it's just a sense of not being able to kind of control your, your own emotions when you're mm. competing. And I've always been a calm player, and regardless of you know how the game is going whether we're winning or we're losing as long as you know you're doing everything that you can you can't control what other people do or yeah. whether they're going to beat you or not because they could just be better um but the idea i mean that's really interesting to me in that so the idea that there's a chink in your armor the idea that there's a human foible in there somewhere like that bothers you yeah, and I feel like there's never really been armor because I'm usually like a happy-go-lucky person, which is often why teams hated me. Not hated me, because they couldn't hate me. Like, it was... Right. They they often would say later, they said, we hate playing against you because we can't hate you as a person because you're too nice. Like, you're, mm. you're nice. You're playing rugby and you're tackling people and then you'd help them up or you'd, right. you know, like... They have to hate them, like they have to be mad at themselves for not being able to tackle me, not for me because I can run mm. around them. You know, it's it's different. But if I was a if I was a mean person on the field, they could just despise me and yeah. want to like kill me just because I'm a terrible person. Not, I mean, if you're gonna hate, just yeah, it's different. It's just so different. I don't know. And the whole the whole thing that threw me off wasn't even a particular person. The you never blame the refs, but the referee was terrible. And like, <laughs> anyway, the whole thing was just a bit crazy. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I feel like I've been able to be more in flow, like that tunnel vision. Yeah. More so in bobsledding, and I think for me personally, it's because it's shorter. Mm. So you're focused, and you're just focusing, and you block everything out. For rugby, I'm playing, and I'm not really concerned about anything else that's going on, but I am a little more like. Do to do to do, right. and like la yeah. la, because it's such a long game. So your mind's functioning a bit more like it does day to day. In yeah, the, day, the, I mean, you're still focused yeah. on playing, and you're yeah. still like, and there are moments where you're, and I mean, y you don't really see the crowd, but it's you're still, it's a different, um, a little more, I would say, chill mood because you can't maintain yeah. that intensity for for the whole time. Right. And how do you get yourself into that flow now when you're sat at a desk and you're doing writing keynotes and email and like are there are there things that you need to be able to do that? Yeah, for me I have to shut everything like I have to shut everything off. And um, what's the everything? Everything would be like any kind of ringers or vibrations on my phone, like any notifications. Um, if I'm doing writing, I literally need to close my email because if I see an email pop up, then I will 
be inclined to answer it. And if I don't answer it, I'll be wondering what it's yeah. saying. So even if you kind of say, I'm not going to answer emails, if you know one just came in, you're going to want to answer it. This is um, all good productivity ninja stuff, by the way. Yes, I, like I feel like I am a <laughs> ninja. I have moments of ninja-isms and esque. Um, I sometimes, depending on what I'm doing, I can listen to music. Um, but if it's music that I can sing and bop around to the lyrics to, then often not. Um, so that kind of that depends as well. Um, but yeah, I usually just kind of need to shut that stuff off and like be sitting you know at a desk um, where I'm sitting upright for me <sighs> sometimes I need candies <laughs> really to just the little yeah <laughs> like I yes um, for focus like I actually focus very very well when I have just little tiny candies that I can just constantly and for the sugar rush or for the reward or I don't know I really don't <laughs> um, I don't know that I get a, mu a much of a rush from sugar but I do tend to eat a lot of sugar Really? Yes. Uh, but that surprises me. It got me through my master's degree. It will get, <laughs> it will get me through everything. But just little ones like cinnamon hearts or those little like rockets, even though right. they don't have rockets in the States, but they just have these just these little things to munch on or something to drink. And it might just be I heard a theory a while ago. I think mom told me this at university this theory where it's kind of this oral fixation of like if your mouth is mm. working, if it's moving, then you're it kind of keeps things focused and your brain kind of going and there is, there is also a lot of research around if you drink uh, lemonade there's, there's research done with lemonade that has sugar in it versus lemonade that's diet and what that does for decision making um, so the yeah so the control group when they had diet lemonade uh, they ran out of willpower and they stopped making decisions and their brain was slower and because the glucose from from the sugary lemonade is affecting the brain and kind of fueling those decisions that you need to make, so there, there is you know this wow. brain, brain chemistry research around that stuff. I have um, no of idea. Of course, there's a, a lot of um, that's a good short term way to increase willpower and reduce decision fatigue, but. A, it'll make you fat, and B, you'll start to True. then get the sugar highs and sugar crashes. Yeah. So in the longer term, it's not necessarily a right. sustainable thing. But like if you're, you know, if you've been on the go for five or six days straight, and it's like you're really, really tired, something to be said for a glass of lemonade and or a little bit of sugar to candies, just get you through some, the last. And sometimes bit. it could it could just be like nuts or just uh, for me I think it's like just little like mm. literally continue moving from hand to mouth right. hand to mouth and just like it keeps things kind of yeah. processing and going mm. so it could be like mini carrots it could be like chopped vegetables it could be something where you don't have to look at it and you're just literally reaching over and to your mouth yeah. reaching over to and I don't know what it is it's just it keeps me it keeps me able to focus for a lot longer when I'm so there's going to be loads of people listening to this on their daily commute <laughs> saying the Olympian has just told us it's official we can have sweets at work. It's well, okay. listen, I believe that there's a time and a place. Uh, I do believe there's a time and a place. I do believe that a lot of stress is caused by worrying too much about what we eat as opposed to yeah, just absolutely. eating it, yeah. you know? Yeah, just yeah. eat it and it's the guilt that people should need to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And whether that means not eating it so you're not guilty or whether you eat it, just... Just yeah, gonna... I'm going through this right now in that um, I was... Are you feeling guilty right now? No, not feeling guilty. <laughs> I, I, was, I was really lacking in energy a few weeks ago. And yeah. so I, I've hired a nutrition coach who okay. is helping me with blood sugar regulation and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And so I have to take a photo of each meal that I eat. Wow. So I send it to her and that's my accountability. And I sort of sussed out that it's not 
enough of a motivation for me to keep me happy. But if there's someone else at the other end of the WhatsApp little group thing, well, that's why a lot of people get then, trainers, you know, right? right? Yeah, so I'm my trainer huge. for eating rather than trainer for sport. You know? Totally, so I just I do it that way, and um, yeah, it really does make me much more mindful not only of like what I eat, but when yeah. I eat and the choices yeah. I'm making. And all that. So to the point where I was in. Um, the hotel last night and I only wanted a snack but I, I smuggled in an avocado <laughs> and then got like a got just asked for a knife and the, the woman's like you want a knife just for like potato sweet potato fries and I was like yeah because I could and I cut up the avocado and put it on top of the sweet potato <laughs> but you know that will make Colette happy back in back avocado in on your sweet potato yeah, fries yeah because yeah. it's just in well, fries are good. I eat fries all the time with potato it's vegetables and sweet know? potato right it's a little bit better than starchy white potato. Oh, listen, I'll eat white potatoes. <laughs> I'm from PEI. It's a potato capital. Of, um, yeah, I just, I, I mean, it's a whole other podcast we need to do talking about diet. That's right. for sure. Okay. But, yeah. But, yeah. So a couple of things then before we finish. So um, I, I'd like to know, so in terms of the next, so when you get to the end of um, each of those big goals mm-hmm. and you've achieved them or you've not achieved them, generally you've achieved them. Um, and then you set the next one. I'm wondering what are the goals that you're setting right now, and like, what are the yeah, like, what what are the kind of next steps for you? Um, now that I like, what are my big goals? Well, mm-hmm. right now it's the book. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, for for a little while it was getting this new keynote kind of written. I'm down there probably over the summer. Um, going into the fall, I'll want to kind of convert my keynotes into workshops so that I can actually do a little more hands-on stuff and have breakout groups and and that sort of stuff to figure out to actually I don't I I really truly want to add value to people and I want people to kind of come away with these aha moments like or just huh Mm. huh like I want to (laughs) shift that perspective on how people are thinking about things and make them realize you know are you really giving hundred percent yeah not just a hundred percent of what you're being told to give or like that's expected of you but a hundred percent of what you're capable of and are you stretching yourself like are you are you challenging yourself enough um, and so yeah so that's also why you know a lot of people over the last two years have been like when's your book coming out when's your book and I just like well you know, and then I realized it's an extension. It's it's something that can give in more information from what I actually do in a keynote. It's able to reach more people, and that sort of thing. So that's my biggest focus. My biggest goal right now is the cool. book. Um, what do you what would you worry about? What are the things that make you nervous about not achieving those goals, or just in general? Like, what's the what's the stuff that's harder for you? I don't know. I didn't know I was supposed to worry about stuff. Um, I think... Uh, That's a good answer. Yeah, I did. was I supposed to worry about things? There's a, there's a Canadian national team? Yeah, there's a Canadian. Gosh, let me tell you, ignorance, ignorance has been bliss a little bit in my life. Like, just not knowing stuff. Sometimes, like, yeah, it's just, it's been probably a blessing for me. But I think the, the biggest thing I worry about is just as, you know, when because things are busy, I don't want them to necessarily be as busy. So it's... It's mindfulness on controlling, mm. you know, the amount of things I'm taking on and doing. And also, for me, I guess the worry comes into play. And am I spending enough time? Am I seeing my family enough? Am I Because they're kind of spread out. Yeah. You know, my sister and her family are in Denver. My parents are in PEI and some of my best friends in PEI. My brother and his family are in Nova Scotia. You know, it's they're kind of all over. But for me, that's like they are they're the most important thing in my life which means I just want to make sure that even though I have these new goals that I'm pursuing 
I just want to make sure that it's my family is still the priority in, in all of it and to make sure that I have time I'm traveling all over the place yeah. so making sure that yeah. that travel you know incorporates travel with my family so yeah sounds good um, and then I suppose one final thing is there's a really interesting dynamic around sport achievement and particularly around individual sports I know like like apart from cycling perhaps none of your sports are actually individual sports in that sense are they but like in terms of that individual achievement thing the uh, the the effects that happens around something like an Olympic Games it brings tons of people together you strike me as like someone who is really keen to uh, sort of show everybody the view from the peaks that you've hit right so you're out there talking about achievement and helping other people to use your stuff to fuel their stuff and mm -hmm. everything else um, but then on the other hand it's like it is ultimately about putting it puts people on pedestals and there's a kind of you have to have a very selfish drive in terms of training and all that kind of stuff so I'm just kind of interested about that whole dynamic between selfish and selfless and do you is it more about doing it for you is it more about doing to doing it to inspire people and is that something that you think about it's certainly something I think about um, I get very frustrated when I see people using the same success or similar success uh, to raise themselves up on pedestals um, mm. as opposed to I feel blessed I feel like my two gold medals have afforded me the opportunity to inspire and empower other people and it's just a way through my experiences to not be able to just I don't want to just show them hi this is what I've done and I'm going to tell you because it's a cool story I want a lot of people would just listen to that anyway wouldn't they right like, but I want so I want to do that as an, as an option yeah as an option but I want to tell it and I don't yeah. mind sharing any of my stories but I want to tell it in a way that makes people realize that whatever their peak of their mountain if we're talking about Antarctica or whether we're talking about the top of the podium whatever their gold medal is whatever their you know that they can find a way to get there as well like I don't want to just be like hey look at me this is what I did mm. and spout out this cliche thing like oh dream big you can do it too you know <laughs> but I want them to really truly believe in the possibilities of what they can achieve in their own lives and I feel like I've just been afforded this amazing opportunity to, to do that and to help as many people as I can mm. and I really I feel blessed like whether it's um, and you were saying to inspire other people like what's your motivation most Olympic athletes will just pursue this goal because it's their because it's their goal mm. and then afterwards use it as a way if they want to use it to inspire people or whether they just want to use it to raise themselves up, whatever. Yeah. But it usually kind of comes after the fact. And I almost quit before Vancouver. Um, there's a lot of politics in sports. There's a lot mm -hmm. of um, behind the scenes. There's bullshit. There's like, there's manipulation. There's stuff that I was just like, you know what? Because for me, it was never about bobsledding. It was the challenge, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So when you kind of get put through that and you're put in these positions, you're just kind of like, well, for me... I, I was just like, is this worth it? Is this worth the mental turmoil mm. that's going on right now? And I'm like, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Like, let's just, you know, if I left, let's see how, you know, what's going to happen. And I don't need to deal with this stuff. Um, and I mentioned that to my father and my, he like would support me in anything. And he even said that he goes, well, okay, if that's what you want to do. He goes, I just never really, cause I said, I don't think winning an Olympic medal is worth what I'm mentally going like being put through right now mm. 
And he just said, yeah, okay, well, we'll support you in whatever you decide. But I never really thought this whole thing was about an, an Olympic medal. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I always just, I always just thought about how this experience, regardless of how it turned out, would how many people's, how many lives you would be able to impact based on, based on what you're doing and what would happen afterwards. And Mm. it just completely shifted, completely shifted my, my perspective to being not even about a challenge anymore. It was about, it was about regardless of what happens, I'm going to challenge myself physically, but regardless of what happens, how many people, and at that point, the only people I I was thinking about were probably islanders like people in pei my friends my family like people who just knew me at that point i wasn't nationally known or i wasn't you know we weren't the name on the national stage but you must feel like a total you know when you i come from a small town as well and like you know that something like that is just going to be something that people just really cling on to and it inspires them and even just from that town let alone exactly but i hadn't thought about that then until that time i hadn't thought about it so for me it was about inspiring my town my community the people around me and that sort of thing regardless of what turned out they knew i came forth and i'm gonna go and try and and whatever that happens it's just an inspiring story and that's what shifted and it wasn't until and then we won in vancouver and suddenly it was i wasn't just inspiring a small community anymore i was able to reach like thousands and thousands of people across the country and it's been it's just been amazing but the fact that I almost left and the thing that kept me going was that having my dad point out how many people I could impact and inspire and motivate and Mm. by staying in it that just feels like the most perfect note to everyone (laughs) that's a great story and uh, I suppose we have to uh, thank your dad for inspiring thank my dad, you in that my moment mom, and my allowing family. you to I know. inspire I've, other people as well. I've been very blessed, yeah. Cool. Thank you for being on Beyond Busy. Uh, it's it's, I'm so happy to be here. Real pleasure. Uh, we will connect on a few other things sort of Absolutely. after the podcast and uh, wishing you the best of luck with the book. And thank you. All that kind of stuff. And uh, Heather, thanks again. Thanks. So that's it for another episode of Beyond Busy. Thanks again to Heather for being a really great guest. And if you want to find out more about what she does, heathermoyes.com is her personal website. That's as good a place as any to start. Thanks also to Mark Stedman from Bloomsbury Digital. Bloomsbury Digital. I can never say that properly. Bloomsbury Digital (laughs) for producing the show. And you can find out more at getbeyondbusy.com. What you'll find there is show notes, links to stuff we've been talking about, links to all the previous episodes. There's an FAQ page to help you to subscribe, uh, subscribing via iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else. Uh, So check out getbeyondbusy.com. I'd love to hear what you think so far. Um, Just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk is my email address. And I'm on Twitter just at graham Alcott. So uh, hit me up there if that's easier. Uh, Do subscribe, that really helps. Uh, and uh, if you haven't checked out my uh, company's website, we're called Think Productive. We run a whole range of very practical workshops helping organisations to to just get much more productive and be much less stressed in the work that they do. Uh, so we have bases in the UK, in the US, Canada, uh, Australia and Western Europe. So if you're in any of those places, uh, just go to thinkproductive.com. Uh, and to be honest, wherever else you are in the world, like we will fly to you. So uh, yeah, just go to thinkproductive.com. 
uh, thinkproductive.co.uk in the UK. Uh, and check us out. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to come and help your team, help your organisation. Uh, thanks again for being here on another episode of Beyond Busy. Um, it's just a real privilege uh, sharing uh, this stuff with you and I hope you're getting uh, some real value from it. So uh, drop me a line and let me know. The next episode will be out in two weeks' time. So until then, thanks again for joining me on Beyond Busy and goodbye for now.